0: Hello. 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 And welcome, welcome to mobilize.
1: mobilize. Mobilize is a podcast that puts a spotlight on
0: and is a resource for people, people. friends, communities, communities activists, activists who have decided to stand, to stand up,
1: resist, resist, resist,
0: resist. resist.
1: fight back,
0: mobilize. mobilize. Each day, together. Together.
1: together, we shine
0: a light on the we truth. A light on the we truth. focus
1: on the things that unite us.
0: We, we pull, pull each together. other up. We celebrate, we celebrate our, our shared humanity. Community. Episode 19, Don't Be a Paper Tiger.
1: A lot of the battles that activists are fighting against the Trump administration today are a continuation of the fight for civil rights and civil liberties for all Americans that has been taking place for decades. My father, Stephen Nagler, was a public interest lawyer in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s who was involved in a lot of that work. As Assistant General Counsel for Congress of Racial Equality, Then, executive director of first the New Jersey State ACLU and then the Migrant Legal Action Program in Washington, D.C., he spent the better part of three decades fighting for those who are being denied the protections of the Bill of Rights, establishing the types of precedents that the current administration now seeks to overturn. Last year, I sat down and talked with my dad about that work and the role it played in his life, and how he feels about the activism of the current era. So, tell me about what your. Upbringing was like where you grew up and how you sort of took an interest in activism.
2: Well, my parents were both socially conscious. I remember The Daily Worker being in our home uh, when I was a kid.
1: What's The Daily Worker?
2: It was the official newspaper of the US Communist Party. Uh, But I don't think my father or my mother were communists. They were not active in any kind of particular political effort. My uncle was a leading labor Zionist. Vice President of the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. Uh, I found out a few years later that in 1948, he and a colleague of his spent the year smuggling guns. To Israel, of course. You know, my uncle was active politically in 19, I believe, 1937-38. My uncle was a candidate for Bronx borough president on the uh, fusion ticket, which was headed by Fiorello LaGuardia, who was running for mayor. They got together in reaction to much of the corruption that had been gone on in the Democratic City administration for many, many years. But somewhat later, when I was in college, I had organized something called the City College Public Affairs Forum. Among the speakers we invited were all of the presidential candidates. But you know, the 50s and college campuses generally, and City College included, was a time characterized by what has generally been described by the word apathy. So we would have these programs, hold them in a big hall, and have 15, 20 people in the room. And to some extent, it was a bit embarrassing. At one point, we invited John Gates, who at the time was the editor-in-chief of The Daily Worker. He was invited initially by students at Queen's College to speak at Queen's. And the provost banned him from speaking at Queen's College. Well, we invited him to speak at City College after we saw that he'd been banned at Queen's with a sort of a this-can't-happen-here attitude, and lo and behold, the president of City College banned him from speaking as well. Uh, We appealed to the Board of Higher Education, which affirmed the ban on the grounds that Gates was under indictment under the Smith Act, the act used to convict communists, charging them with conspiracy to overthrow the government, although none of these people actually were ever involved in any kind of an active effort to overthrow the government of the United States, or any other government for that matter. A few months later, I issued another invitation, this time to a man named Asa Carter, who's the Grand Dragon of the Alabama Ku Klux Klan. And again, he was banned by the college president on the grounds that he was under indictment for murder in Alabama, and that if he spoke at City College, it might interfere with the ability of the state of Alabama to secure a fair trial, a position which we thought was completely ludicrous and the New York Civil Liberties Union declined to take on the case because we were absolutely right and the law was clear and they wouldn't make new law. Mm. From that standpoint, we felt they were a bit of a paper tiger. You know, they were willing to tell you what your rights were, but they would not take on a matter to protect civil liberties in situations in which civil liberties needed to be protected, but in which they would not have the opportunity to make new law. That left an indelible impression on me for many years and decided me, in essence, uh, to become actively involved in in civil rights activities.
1: Tell me about the Peace Corps, how you ended up in the Peace Corps and so
2: on. I'd always been, you know, active from college on. 1960, we ran the Kennedy campaign in Queens County. And when Kennedy was elected, I found the announcement of the Peace Corps very exciting. My wife and I were among the first volunteers to go into the Peace Corps generally. And we're the first group to go to what was then Yasaland, mm-hmm. which became Malawi while we were there. When we went into the Peace Corps in 1962, it was largely as a means of being active in the whole ethos of the Kennedy administration and of the Kennedy campaign, go to and learn a little bit about Africa, and very much become involved with people, You know, playing an active role outside of teaching with our students that would foster economic development. We wound up volunteering to the Malawi Development Authority doing a tree planting project along local roads to prevent the the roads from washing out during heavy rainstorms during the rainy season. Uh, I also wrote a chapter in a handbook for magistrates and teaching magistrates. We had to figure out which line of law governed the newly independent nation of Malawi. At one point, it would have been the High Court of South Africa that was dictating the law. At another point, it would have been the British Privy Council. At another point, it would have been the High Court of the Federation of Rhodesia and Nyasaland. At another point, it would have been the High Court of Nyasaland. So it was a rather interesting project to decide what the law was.
1: Right.
2: And to help the country to produce a body of laws which govern the country going forward.
1: Congress of Racial Equality, how did you end up in that job, and what was that?
2: You know, I, I had two job offers uh, when I came back from the Peace Corps. One was to be an assistant district attorney in New York County. Oh, really? And the other was to work for Corps. And I chose the CORE job um, uh, on impulse, in essence. Became active as assistant general counsel. It was an overall civil rights organization. It was probably a little bit to the left of the Urban League and the NAACP and a little bit to the right of uh, SNCC and of SCLC, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, that was Martin Luther King's organization. And to some extent there was overlap, but to some extent the different organizations operated in different areas. Uh, For major events like uh, the Selma March, there was cooperation between the organizations, although SCLC was the primary sponsor. So, you know, there was, Quite a busy time from the standpoint of civil rights. Mm -hmm. You know, I was backing up our general counsel in moving forward civil rights litigation in Louisiana and Florida and elsewhere in the South as well. Did that for about three years and then moved to New Jersey to become executive director of the New Jersey affiliate of the American Civil Liberties Union. We did over 500 cases in one year while I was there. Uh, We did more cases than any other ACLU affiliate. And in fact, more cases than the two largest ACLU affiliates, New York and Southern California, combined.
1: Mm.
2: One case that we did that I will never forget involved the rights of a bunch of people to march on the boardwalk in Atlantic City. They were banned from marching on the grounds that they were Nazis. And uh, as was the case in every situation like that, we won that case. And uh, shortly after we won that case, I got a call from our client. Um, in which he said, you know, you people aren't so bad after all. We've decided that when uh, we take power, we will give you your choice of flavors of gas. I'm sure he thought that was very funny. I did not. (laughs) You people being
1: Jewish people
2: or the ACLU? The ACLU, civil libertarians, liberals, Mm -hmm. Jewish people. I don't know whether he made the connection. And I didn't ask him what he meant by that. Right. I was rather shocked by it at the yeah. time.
1: <laughs> did that give you any pause in terms of representing people like that when it came to civil liberties? Or no, did you if, feel if like if you, would... def-
2: if you don't defend civil liberties for the people who are least favored in our society, civil liberties are not safe for anyone. The cases arise. Most frequently, the group whose rights are infringed are people that are unpopular within the society, although increasingly among people with a message that may be unpopular with law enforcement authorities, but is mainstream within society as a whole.
1: So you see some connection between that kind of work and protest movements of today, such as Black Lives Matter?
2: Yes, I think the connection is a very clear one. I think efforts recently to pass new statutes blocking or limiting the ability to demonstrate and protest are a serious threat to civil liberties within this country, which must be fought tooth and nail.
1: What other cases for the ACLU were interesting or that
2: that you think were some of your best there were a number of cases we did involving police brutality it was a practice among the state police to stop and search of unusual vehicles vw vans in search of drugs especially if the drivers were men with long hair or if the van was painted with some kind of psychedelic colors the war on drugs is roundly regarded as a failure today and the local manifestations in new jersey and other states searches and stop and frisk and so on was bad law enforcement from the standpoint of the issues of illegal search and seizure. We were responsible for starting the Frontiero case. The case involved a woman in the military who was denied health benefits for her husband, when men in the military were always granted family benefits, including their wives and children. This was clearly unconstitutional and a violation of the right of women to equal protection of the laws. The volunteer lawyer who I recruited to handle that case, who won the case in the US Supreme Court, was a lawyer named Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I was honored several years later when Justice Ginsburg came back to Rutgers Law School and thanked me and one other person active in the ACLU for getting her involved in public interest cases. We also at the time in the ACLU had an office in Newark to handle local problems, anything from welfare to uh, the rights of individuals to secure housing and adequate assistance. We also had an office in the Camden area dealing with rights of farm workers, which primarily focused on the right to organize, which again is a First Amendment right. And we formed the first chapter of the ACLU in, uh, in a prison. That was in Trenton State Prison. We also started a Prisoner's Rights Project, and uh, we're unique in terms of ACLU affiliates in that regard. We were the only affiliates to do, to do any of those things. Mm. By doing a large number of cases with a large amount of publicity, we wanted to focus public attention on the issues. And from the standpoint of education, I've always been a major advocate of doing everything you can apart from litigation to educate the public as to what their rights are and so on. We put out a brochure that we distributed demonstrations as to what your First Amendment rights were, uh, so that in case there was a problem with the police, demonstrators would know if they were arrested, how to defend themselves. We received a grant from the New Jersey Council for the Humanities to do a a series of radio programs, which we did for several years. And I think the battle for civil liberties ultimately will be won in the public forum through educational programs and have felt that the national office of the ACLU uh, should be more active in that regard as well. Right, right. I went from there to Washington to become executive director of the Migrant Legal Action Program, which was coordinating legal services nationally for migrant and seasonal farm workers. And the issues included education, field sanitation, safe water supply, To support the rights of farm workers to demonstrate free of infringement by local sheriff's offices or vigilantes hired by growers enforcing fair labor standards which was one of the few laws that did not exclude farm workers farm workers were excluded from minimum wage laws farm workers were excluded from other protections under labor legislation and we did our best to uh, enforce what rights they did have against heavy resistance from organized agriculture. I and mean, that was a constant struggle mm-hmm. and a struggle that continues to this day.
1: Why are farm workers' rights treated so differently from other workers' rights?
2: In part politically, because farm workers have traditionally not been organized. They are almost exclusively working in rural areas where the congressional personnel tend to be heavily Republican Mm -hmm. and tend to be more sympathetic to the people who give the money, namely the growers. Mm -hmm. Also, many of the migrant workers were immigrants. Some of them were brought in under the H2 program, allowing growers to bring in workers from Mexico, Guatemala, Central America generally, due to a claimed insufficiency of American citizen workers who did not, and this to some extent is true, we're not interested in doing low-paying stoop labor in the field right. uh, if there were other jobs available that were either more lucrative or less taxing. At one point, I was approached by a reporter and he wanted to know more about what was going on with farm workers. And I said, well, if you really want to know, let's go out and do it. Mm-hmm. And we hitchhiked down to North Carolina, walked into a migrant camp and spent two days harvesting peppers. The housing we were placed in was hot, the beds were barely usable, the rooms were heavily infested with mosquitoes and so on. And after two nights, the reporter said, I've had enough, I don't want to do any more, decided not to go through with our arrangement to stay there an entire week and wound up writing an article or a couple of articles, which again, goes to the question of public education and making people aware of what's going on.
1: How did you balance all this work with having a family, with those responsibilities? And you also had to support your wife because she was doing her own activism, doing stuff for she now. She was very
2: active in, in now and in women's rights activities generally. Mm-hmm. And the, at the ACLU, I was collaterally involved in women's rights activities as well. You know, we were mutually supportive for the activities that we each engaged in mm-hmm. and agreed as a matter of policy with what both of us were doing.
1: Right. This is something I know I've talked about with mom that, you know, she sort of didn't really want to take us to demonstrations. How did you try and find a way to, you know, pass on your values without forcing the kids to do certain things or have certain beliefs or? We
2: didn't, we, we told our, you know, the kids what we were doing, mm-hmm. but we didn't try to say, you should believe this mm-hmm. or you should share our views. I think they just came to do that. from understanding what we were doing and why we were doing it, from the conversations we might have around the dinner table. And, uh, you know, they they picked it up that way. And they might also have been genetically predisposed to be (laughs) sympathetic with what their parents were doing.
1: What kind of advice would you give to people today when this is such a challenging environment who are, who are looking to get into activism and do something about this, you know, and it's very easy
2: to get discouraged? Yeah, it's true. It is a problem, and many people suffer from what you'd have to call inertia. Right. Uh, you know, it's much easier to sit at home and watch the results of a demonstration with which you're sympathetic than to get out and demonstrate. Right. To some extent, the administration is very helpful in that regard because they continue to come out with one outrage after another from the standpoint of public policy. Um, and those, those outrages are, in many cases, sufficient to stimulate people who might not otherwise be active.
1: What do you see, see the outcome of all of this, you know, the, what the administration's doing, what people are doing in opposition? Where do you think this is going to...?
2: Well, when then-President Pence <laughs> seeks to run for re-election. <laughs> um, so you're you know, pretty
1: you're pretty confident about an impeachment happening.
2: I don't whether it'll be impeachment or a record of a record that is so horrendous mm-hmm. that even the Republican Party will refuse to renominate a sitting president, mm-hmm. which virtually never happens. Right. Right. I think the next president will be a Democrat, mm-hmm. um, and my hope is that it'll be someone from the left wing of the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Uh, who that person will be, whether it'll be Elizabeth Warren or someone like that, mm-hmm. I think it's too soon to say. But it depends on what the mainstream of the Democratic Party will do, how actively they will resist the, what's going on coming out of the administration. And it depends upon how effective they'll be. But reform has to start at the grassroots level. You have to bring people out to do the right thing. You have to convince them that staying home and sitting on their hands, when they hate what is being done, uh, is not going to get the kind of changes that they want or prevent the kind of changes that they fear. I've got to show up. I've got to. I've got to speak out. You know, I've got to express my views and try to convince others. And I've got to be, most of all, in order to do that, have to be informed about the issues. Mm-hmm. Activism today is more important than ever before.
0: Hey everyone, um, Corey here. And I just wanted to give a little little message now that we're wrapping up season two of Mobilize. So, you know, two years ago, after the 2016 elections concluded, everybody was in a rough state and uh, we knew we were going to be in the fight of our lives, of our time. And that's what it's been for the last two years. We've seen time and time again, the criminals and bigots and all around violent people In the White House and their enablers just unleash attacks on our neighbors, our friends, our families, our communities. And um, it's been pretty rough. But there have been some really exciting and important bright spots to, I think, the last two years have shown us as a country that not only is it important for us to stand up and fight against evil, but when we stand up and we stand together we can win. It's not too late for our country. It's not too late. Um, Some of the big wins, some of the really exciting things that we were able to be a small part of uh, through Mobilize were when the first Muslim ban was issued and, you know, thousands of people took to JFK and we shut down that airport and we sent a message that if you cross this line, citizens will stand up and we will force the politicians, we will force the people that set the rules that govern our, our lives, our collective lives, we will force them to go back. There, there are certain lines you, you cannot cross. And that when we stand up, when the people get out in the street, when we shut things down, results happen. And um, another great win for, for us is when mobilize subject Kristen Mink confronted Scott Pruitt in a D.C. dining establishment. And a few days later, he resigned from office. That was really exciting and, and showed just the power of what an individual could do. So there's been a lot of wins. So where do we go from here? The 2020 election is coming up. That's our next big chance to make a huge difference for good in our country, in our democracy. And it's not our goal to just spotlight the different contenders or follow the political news of the moment. That's not what we're looking to do. What we would hopefully like to do for this next upcoming season, season three of Mobilize, is talk about how do we, as progressive, as liberal, as moral people, how do we move forward to the 2020 elections united with people we may have legitimate disagreements with? But being united in order to beat the corruption, the hatred that is Donald Trump and his party. How do we stay together? How do we make sure we win the important fights so that our legitimate differences on opinion of how we tackle problems we know we need to solve can happen? Because unless we win, unless Donald Trump loses We're not going to be able to have discussions on how we solve the problems for our country. We're going to be fighting to be recognizing that these problems are even real. So, yeah, thank you so much for being with us um, all of these episodes, and we look forward to more.